This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. Welcome to Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chotner. My guest today is Ashley Parker, a political reporter at The Washington Post. For several years, Parker covered politics for The New York Times. She also covered the Washington scene for the newspaper and worked for New York Times columnist Maureen Dowd. Parker, who grew up in Maryland and attended the University of Pennsylvania, now finds herself covering the most controversial administration in recent history, and one which presents numerous challenges for the news media. Ashley, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Just to give a little behind-the-scenes glimpse of uh, life in the podcast world, we had planned this podcast several times over the past 48 hours, and it kept getting postponed because... Your job has meant that you've been in the middle of some of the four, craziest 48 hours in, I guess, the history of Washington. So we're recording this Wednesday night. It's going to go up Thursday morning. Can you talk about what your last 48 hours have been like? Yeah, well, first of all, I should apologize to you for canceling twice and pushing it back. But I sort of figured a night might be a little safer. Um, but yes, the past 48 hours have felt utterly crazy. I mean, on Monday, the Post published this, you know, sort of a bombshell disclosure that in any other world with any other president would have dominated the news cycle for, I imagine, weeks that, you know, the president had disclosed highly sensitive information to, you know, Russian government officials in the Oval Office. Um, And while we were all kind of still reeling from that, then on Tuesday, the New York Times published this story that, you know, Trump had basically, according to Comey, pressured him to drop the investigation against Flynn. And then today, when we were all still reeling from that, there was the news that the DOJ appointed a special counsel to look into the Russia um, collusion matter. And by the way, lost in all this, and this just shows you what a crazy news cycle it is, is my colleague Adam Entos's scoop that, again, in any other world, in any other news cycle, on any other day, would have been a huge story in and of itself, which is that he listened to a sort of secret recording of Leader McCarthy saying before Trump became the Republican nominee, I believe, uh, that he thought he was getting paid by Putin. So busy 48 hours is the short answer to your question. How does this work for you when one of these stories breaks? I mean, it's are you on your on the phone with sources right away? Are you talking to editors? Like, just talk to me a little bit about the process of being a political reporter at The Washington Post right now. Sure. So I cover the White House. I'm a daily beat reporter on the White House. And so a lot of what my editors want from me is sort of inside the White House you know, reporting and scene and mood. So as soon as one of these things happens, um, I'm immediately on the phone with sources and officials inside the White House, uh, people who are outside the White House, but in frequent touch with the president and those inside the White House trying to get a sense of, you know, 
what's going on? How is the comms team responding? How was this allowed to happen? What is the president's mood? What are people thinking? And on the one hand, it feels a bit like, you know, it's it's some of it is palace intrigue and it feels like gossip and atmospherics. Um, but with this White House especially, it also feels relevant because this is a president who makes governing decisions and, and policy decisions and political decisions based on his moods and based on his whims. And you know, based on if he's angry about something or feels the need to tweet. And so doing that kind of inside the White House reporting, our thought is helps you get a better sense of where the White House is right now, where the president's mind is right now, and ideally where it's headed. Although, admittedly, we can never quite predict that with great accuracy. You had a co-byline on a story, I think it was last week, that said that there were, correct me if this is wrong, 30 sources on the story. Yeah, I think, I think we said more than 30. More than 30, Isaac. More than 30. Yeah, thank you. Um, <laughs> well, I, I guess what I was wondering is, I mean, have you noticed you've covered other White Houses and other presidential campaigns? Have you have you noticed more of a proclivity in this White House for people to talk to the press, despite the fact that the, the this administration is seen by some people as being, you know, sort of anti-media? I think... I, yes, I think I think that's true. And actually, I should clarify, I've covered politics for a long time and campaigns, but this is the first White House I've covered in sort of a, a daily way. But yes, I mean, one thing that makes these leaks or this willingness to speak to the press so prevalent is Donald Trump's management style, which is one of sort of, you know, warring factions and organized chaos. And so one thing that often works to your benefit as a reporter is if there's, you know, five dueling camps or power centers inside the White House and they all have a message and they all have a narrative they want to get out, then they've realized the best way to do that is by talking to the media. Of course, that makes reporting in another sense a bit more difficult because everybody has an agenda and everybody has a point of view and no one is necessarily a straight shooter. So something you hear from one person you kind of have have to be skeptical and, and run the traps. There's very few people in this White House who, have, you know, if they tell you it, you can sort of take it to the bank. Um, and that's another reason why for a lot of these stories, we try to talk to as many people as possible to sort of present a 360 version of, of the truth as we best understand it in that moment. Did you say run a trap? Run the traps. Well, can you explain what that is, running the traps? Sure. I guess I just meant that, you know, if, if someone, if an ally of Bannon tells you something or or an ally of Reince Priebus or an ally of Jared, it doesn't mean that that is sort of the 100 percent black and white truth. It means that that's their take or their perspective or their spin or their agenda. So by running the traps, I mean, it's going to, you know, other sources, um, other people within the White House saying I've I've heard this. Is it true? What what am I missing? This doesn't quite add up. This doesn't make sense to me. How can I understand this better? So I guess the short answer is by running the traps, I mean, just doing doing more reporting. Let me ask you this. I mean, to the extent that you're talking to people in the White House um, and close to the president, do you have some larger sense? I mean, not some not things people would say on the record, but do you have some larger sense of the way you think people close to Trump view him? Yes. Um, so we actually, it's funny, we have a story that is running in tomorrow's paper, Thursday's paper, um, that just posted tonight that sort of captures a sense of beleaguered weariness on the part of his staff. And so I, I should be clear that no one, for instance, has said this to me in these exact terms, this explicitly, um, but they sort of, the way they describe dealing with his whims and, you know, moods and caprices um, 
is in some ways the way you would kind of try to deal with a with a child uh, in terms of, you know, distracting them, trying to get their attention to something else, you know, not not saying no, because that might cause a meltdown, you know, saying yes, but how about we do it this way? Or what if we consider this? Um, and so they view him as someone who who deeply needs to be managed, but is very, very hard to manage. And they are always sort of coming up with tricks and, and ways to do that. Um, so tell me uh, just about, um, forget the last couple of days, tell me what your average day is like in terms of when when you are on and when you are off, how many hours a day are you glued to your phone? How many hours a day are you working? Is it the first thing you do when you wake up is look at Twitter? Just can you give a little sense of what being a political reporter is right now? Sure. So I feel like I am constantly glued to my phone and glued to Twitter, but that may be more of a personality flaw than a hazard of the job. Um but sort of speaking generally, you know, the cliche is there there is no average day. But here at The Post, we have six full-time White House reporters, which is actually the same number that most major publications have. I, the New York Times has that. The Wall Street Journal has that. I believe Politico has that. Um, and we have different rotations. So we have a duty rotation, which is sort of what you would have in a traditional White House. It's the person who is in the seat in the briefing room every day. It's the person who's at the White House, the person who, if Trump travels, you know, on a day trip goes with him. If Trump spends the weekend in Mar-a-Lago or Bedminster, the duty reporter goes there. Um, And that's sort of standard practice for any White House. And then we also have a duty rotation that feels uniquely designed for President Trump, which is called the hot seat. Um, And it is also the worst rotation because it basically means that you are the person who is responsible for the utter fire hose of of information. Um, And so when you're in the hot seat... You basically your alarm clock is Donald Trump's tweets, right? Because he often makes news in his tweets in the morning. So I'm actually hot seat this week. So what I do before I go to bed um, is I set I'm also not a morning person, admittedly, but I set four alarms on my phone, one at six, one at 615, one at 630 and one at 645. And my alarm goes off. I roll over. I check to see if Donald Trump has tweeted. And if he hasn't, I hit snooze. And I basically do that until a tweet lands when I hop up in bed and start writing on my laptop. And then you are just sort of handling every, you know, fire and and crisis and comment and what his aides are saying on TV for the rest of the day. And then when you're not one of those two rotations, you know, you're sort of a traditional White House reporter working on maybe more analytical stories or profiles or features or palace intrigue or enterprise. Um, so it's it's a balance. Feel free to ignore this question. But I mean, do you, do you feel stressed out or has this affected your personal life? <laughs> um, I do feel I often have a really poor sense of what day of the week it is. Because like a two, you know, you're in the middle of a Tuesday and you feel like this has to be a Thursday or a Friday. Like there clearly is a weekend coming up. Um, so I guess it's a little disorienting. Um, and, you know, deadlines are always stressful, but that's just kind of journalism. But in a way, it also feels really exhilarating and an exciting time to be in D.C. and to be covering this White House. Um, so it, it's kind of a mix. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. 
So just to take a step back, um, how, when did you, when do you think you wanted to get into journalism? How old were you? And what was, what was the first thing you did in journalism? Sure. So I think I always wanted to be a writer. Um, like I've wanted to be a writer as long as I can remember. And I feel like if I, you know, if I had any good plots, I would probably be just as happy being a novelist or or a TV writer. Um, And so in a weird way, I kind of fell into journalism um, because all the stories are there for you. You just have to go out and find them. So I worked for, you know, I worked for my high school newspaper and then I worked for my college newspaper and I tried to get journalism internships um, every summer in college. So probably by high school or college, I knew I wanted to be a journalist, although that might just be, again, a lack of imagination of other potential writing jobs. Um, And then my first job in journalism was I was incredibly lucky. I started uh, right out of college at the New York Times as Maureen Dad's research assistant. What did you learn from working for Maureen Dad? I mean, I think I learned everything working (laughs) for Maureen Dad. Um, I mean, she was just a wonderful boss and and mentor to start with. But, you know, if you just read her her copy, not just her columns, which I know are very popular and people love, but some of the magazine stories she wrote, some of, frankly, her White House coverage um, when she was covering, you know, the first President Bush and doing it in sort of a voicey, colorful way that no one that no one at that time had ever really done before. You know, it taught me a lot about sort of just like writing and and telling stories and sentence structure. And it, you know, it taught me as a reporter sort of like how to be relentless and dogged and persistent. And I also think, um, much to my parents' delight, I emerged with a lot of life skills. Like I just sort of now feel prepared for kind of any crazy situation that could get thrown my way. So let me ask you this. I mean, when I, I, you and I knew each other back in Washington when you were working for Maureen Dowd, and you were also, as, in, as well as working for her, you were writing a lot of stories for the Times, um, stories for the style section, kind of about, I would say, the culture of Washington. Is it fair to say that? Culture of Washington stories? Yeah, totally. Well, I, I guess I was wondering how you look back on on culture of Washington stories now. I think that in our profession, and correct me if you disagree with this or, you know, uh, speak up if you disagree with this, that people have kind of... Um, Stories like that, I feel like now, especially with social media, that they're kind of they're not looked down upon, but people are very critical of them. There is a sense that politics is much more serious now and we shouldn't be talking about personalities and that, you know, this isn't entertainment. We need to view this as, you know, having life threatening consequences for everyone. And so I was wondering when you look back on on sort of politics as culture of Washington type pieces, if you feel like those sort of stories aren't sort of wanted now in the same way or just if anything occurs to you. Sure. Well, two points. I mean, I I think you do sort of have to be aware of the current news moment. So, for instance, today when a special prosecutor, you know, was appointed and it seems like the president may have possibly obstructed justice, there's probably not a huge appetite for like the cool new bar that all the young Trump aides are hanging out at. And I think that is sort of journalistically the right call. Um, But I would argue a lot of those culture of Washington stories and and personalities um, are, are sort of more revealing in, in a bigger way. And so one of, for instance, one of the best pieces of advice I got, the first campaign I covered was Mitt Romney. 
And I went in around the times and I asked, you know, all former campaign reporters for tips. And one of the best pieces of advice I got was that, look, you are the person who has the privilege and the experience of being out with this person who could be the next president, you know, day in and day out. Um, and, you know, your job is to fact check them and your job is to write about their policies and their platforms and their politics and their position and all of that. But you also get to see, you know, what this person is like when they're tired, how they function under pressure, who they choose to surround themselves with, how they make decisions, how they treat their staff, how they treat their staff when they think no one is looking. And so a story that sort of seems like a, a culture of Washington story or a a you know, a profile like the story always of a candidate and their body man, which which I love to do those stories. Um, you know, they they tell you about that relationship, but they also tell you a bit more about the person who could be, you know, the next commander in chief. Um, and I think that's a valuable detail for voters and, and readers to have, because if you look at every president, you never even sort of know to ask them, we, you know, we ask them, what would you do on this? And what would you do on that? But on the major issues that each president is tested by, you couldn't even conceive, for instance, to ask the candidate, George W. Bush, what would you do if hijackers flew, you know, two planes into the, the World Trade Center? So, and, and his answer then is probably very different than when he's actually faced with it. But if you know, again, you know, who his father is, how he makes decisions, who he surrounds himself with, the way he thinks, if he considers himself sort of a decider or, a you know, more pensive like an Obama-style constitutional law professor, I think those things are actually much more revealing and telling even about how someone will govern and the policies they'll make. Right. I mean, I think that, that I think that that's true. It's certainly true with the current administration and also true to some extent with Bush and with Obama and with every president. I mean, I think the critique comes in for more things like, you know, what a candidate wears or what kind of haircut they get or something like that, where I think people feel like, well, the media will focus on this thing, but it actually doesn't tell us something about who this person is and how they would govern. Well, I am the proud author of a front page New York Times story on Mitt Romney's haircut. Um, and I think I would have to go back and read it. But I do think we managed to allegedly distill a few broader truths about what it told us about Mitt Romney, the man, and of course, his hairstyle. Fair enough. Let <laughs> me ask you this. Uh, what do you, Are there any differences you notice? And I'm not asking you to rip a current or former employer, but are there any differences between the way the Times and the Post cover politics? That's a very good question. I mean... It feels like right now in this moment, they both just cover politics incredibly well. I know I'm not the first person to say this, but it feels like there's a sort of old fashioned newspaper war and it's kind of, you know, people going up and down the court and someone sinks a three and then someone else sinks a three and then there's a buzzer beating shot. And, you know, I, I think there's probably some cultural differences, but what are those? But it just feels like everyone is firing on all cylinders. Cultural differences. Yeah. Um. Again, I'm super, well, I guess I'm not that new, but I still feel relatively new at the Post um, compared to have been at the Times for 11 years. I mean, one thing that is, a couple things that are different for me personally is, you know, the Post is a, it's the hometown paper. It's a Washington paper and politics is its bread and butter. So that makes it a very sort of exhilarating, exciting place to be if you're a political reporter. Of course, the New York Times' politics coverage is also world class. That's not a knock against them. Um, but, you know, just being in a newsroom, the Times Bureau in D.C. is is a bureau. It's it's a big bureau and it is a super, again, exhilarating, high functioning bureau. But, you know, it's kind of fun to be in the newsroom where in the post where every single reporter and editor and person is right there. So that's one difference that's you know specific to me. Although, of course, if I had worked in New York, I probably would have had the same experience. How how present is Jeff Bezos? Um, 
I've actually only met him. I've met him a few times, but I think, you know, I think he's present in that he, and again, when I started at the post, he was already, you know, the owner. And so I don't know what it was like before, but I think he is present in sort of like the ambition of both the ambition and like the output of the Washington Post. You know, his sort of leadership and and resources make that possible. Let me ask you this. You became kind of a viral sensation on the Internet a few weeks ago with your facial expressions while Sean Spicer was giving an answer about Bashar al-Assad and uh, Adolf Hitler. And uh, I just want to know what it uh, what it what was going through your mind as you as he gave this somewhat rambling, strange answer as your face took on different degrees of um, surprise and shock and to what it was like to sort of become part of the story. Um, so I think, you know, I think in the moment I was just kind of confused because Sean Spicer had given that original answer on, you know, no one had ever before gassed their people. Um, and then he, the reporter in front of me had basically thrown him a softball and basically said, you know, you've made the statement before, I'm sure you want to clean it up. And then his cleanup basically made made the comment even worse than his initial remarks. Um, so I think I was just kind of stunned and confused to sort of watch someone make something so much worse in real time. And how did it feel to become part of the story? I mean, I think, you know, I think as a journalist, you never want to be part of this story. Um, that said, like, if my eyebrows go a little viral uh, and it means, you know, I sort of heard from like old, old friends and, you know, I had family members. And I guess I make that face a lot because I had a lot of people just say they were very familiar with that expression, including an ex high school boyfriend who said I apparently made that when he asked me to prom. Um, so I don't know, it's interesting insight into how shifty eyed I typically am. Yeah, that must have been a fun moment for him when he asked you to prom. Um, <laughs> So let me ask you this. There's been a lot of criticism of the White House press team, according to news reports, by people within the White House, including Donald Trump, President Trump and Jared Kushner, that the the communications team, Sean Spicer et al., are not dealing well with the various scandals and controversies that come up. Do you feel that the White House's problem is messaging or do you feel like the larger problem is that the president is running a chaotic administration or neither? I mean, I think, you know, I think you are right that the president is sort of frustrated with his comm shop. For starters, he's someone who is kind of a master communicator himself. And in some ways, he is probably right that whatever they are doing, he could do better. It's not dissimilar from um, I I think President Obama had a line about if he had the time, he would be his own best speechwriter, although no one is sort of knocking the chops of Jon Favreau. Um, But. You know, I I also sometimes am aware that these comms people, especially in the past two weeks, have been put in near impossible situations. You know, for instance, on Comey's firing, I think it's pretty hard to spin or message even in the best of circumstances that, you know, you as president have made the decision to fire the director of the FBI, which is currently investigating your campaign and possible collusion with the Russians. And then on top of that, they were literally brought into the Oval Office about an hour before the news broke and and kind of told like, hey, this is coming. So I, I don't know who could have done a better job on that. Have you had any personal interactions with Trump? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I basically I covered Jeb Bush was how I started covering 2016. But as soon as he dropped out, which was in February, I was moved over to the Trump campaign. So I, you know, I followed him all around the country for nearly a year. Um, and in the process, I was in Trump Tower for a couple of interviews with him. Um, I think I was part of a small group of reporters who, you know, chatted with him at a diner in Wisconsin. And then I've been in the Oval Office with him for background and off the record meetings since I've been covering the White House. Um, well, then a, t- a two part question for you. The first is you said earlier that when you're on the campaign trail, sometimes you notice things about the way, you know, a politician talks to their body person or the way their personality operates. Um, so I, I'm curious what on the campaign you noticed about Trump that interested you or you think is relevant now. And second, just when you interact with him, what's different about him than what people might think from following the news or seeing him on television? Sure. The answers uh, to those two questions, I think, are actually sort of tied together. But I was always struck by how much Donald Trump is trying to win over the people in the room directly in front of him in that moment. Um, And so he sort of has a, for instance, a visceral sense of what, you know, a frenzied crowd wants at a rally in Scranton, Pennsylvania, and he can absolutely play to that. And he also has a sense of what, you know, conservative religious leaders in a a private meeting at Trump Tower want to hear from him, and, and he'll play to that. And he has a sense of, you know, what what journalists want. Um, you know, if he's interviewing them or he's giving them a tour of his office in Trump Tower and and play to that. And so, the, you know, that was one thing I noticed on the campaign trail. I think, for instance, just to take a random day, I don't know if you remember, but there was the day he flew to Mexico City and, you know, made comments there. And they were very conciliatory and sort of much more toned down than you would expect from him. Um, and that was because he was in Mexico and he was trying to win over sort of the Mexican officials and government leaders in the room with him. And then hours later, he flew to a rally in Arizona and gave a very fiery populist nativist immigration speech that sort of flew in the face of everything he'd said um, in Mexico. And some people might have thought he was it seems sort of like schizophrenic behavior. But if you understand Donald Trump, it's just that he is trying to charm and win over whoever is in the room in front of him. And so in terms of what in my own personal interactions with him that people might not realize is that especially privately, especially one on one, he can be very charming and charismatic and, you know, funny and friendly with journalists. Right. Well, it seems like he wants to he wants to win over journalists because he he likes he likes getting good headlines and he likes reading about himself in a positive light, which I think is true of a lot of politicians. But, you know, perhaps he's an extreme case of that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think that's true. Um, but again, I think people might be surprised that, you know, this is someone who made journalists sort of part of the Donald Trump show on the campaign trail. I mean, to be clear, reporters are always kept sort of in a in bicycle racks in a separate section. But he put us, you know, in the middle of his events and his events were larger than any politicians events I've covered before. And, you know, he would turn and say, and there they are, there's the despicable media, you know, there's the media scum. They won't even show the crowds and everyone would jeer and hiss and boo. Um, And then oftentimes if you're meeting with him alone, you know, he's again, very sort of friendly and, and charismatic and, and not at all calling you despicable scum one-on-one. So then getting to know him a little and seeing his campaign, has anything surprised you about the first almost four months of his presidency? Um, 
I'm that's a good question. I don't know. I mean, I'm sort of just surprised by sort of the endless stream of of kind of just big news every day that again, you know, in any other administration with any other president would sort of be its own news cycle for days or weeks. I mean, I'm just I'm constantly surprised, even though I should have probably known it was coming just by the sheer pace and relentlessness of the d- news and the demand for news. Um, and I'm also surprised, actually, by how fascinated just everyone is with everything Donald Trump. And, you know, I've covered politics for about 10 years. I've covered politicians before. And normally, you know, if someone found out I was covering the Romney campaign or I was covering Jeb Bush, they might have like a question. But I'm just stunned by how much, you know, I went in, you know, for a doctor's appointment and my doctor was peppering me with questions about Trump. And they weren't just general questions. They were sort of like super informed in the weeds questions, you know, like, so what's the deal with Bannon? And do you think Bannon's deputy is warring with Reince's deputy? And who's going to get the upper hand? And, you know, is it true that Trump loves his cheeseburgers well done? And I, I am just like always amazed by how fascinated sort of America writ large is with everything having to do with Donald Trump. How many times have you checked social media during this interview? Um, zero, actually. Oh, well, I'm glad I could provide some sort of uh, psychological, <laughs> you know, release from your job as well as uh, you could provide some answers to our listeners. So, Ashley, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. And that's our show for today. I Have to Ask is produced by Audrey Dilling with help today from Kevin Townsend. The managing producer of Slate Podcasts is June Thomas, and the executive producer is Steve Lichtai. Our theme music was composed by Doug Chase. To make sure you never miss an episode of I Have to Ask, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And also, take a few moments to rate and review the show. I'd love to hear from you as well. If you have an idea for a guest or just want to let me know your thoughts, just email me at ask at slate.com. That's A-S-K at slate.com. <laughs>